1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Well, hello and welcome back to New Books in Medieval History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am Evan Zerkaitas, your host, and today we will be talking to Dr. Angeliki Limberopoulou, Senior Lecturer in Art History at the Open University in the United Kingdom, to talk about uh, her new book, Cross-Cultural Interaction Between Byzantium and the West, um, 1204 to 1669, Um, Whose Mediterranean is it anyway? Published in 2018 by the Society for the Promotion of Byzantine Studies and the Rutledge Publications. Um, The aim of this volume um, is to address, explore, re examine, and reinterpret this specific aspect of cross cultural interaction in the Mediterranean, um, that between the Byzantine East and the mainly Italian West. And um, the investigation of this interaction has become Increasingly popular as the book states in the past few decades um, due to the relevance it has for cultural exchanges in um, our everyday society. Um, hello, Angeliki. Uh, welcome
3: to the show. Hello, Evan. Uh, thank you for having me. I'm very happy to be here.
2: Absolutely. We are very happy as well. Um, Angeliki, I wonder if you begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself.
3: Of course, um, uh, as you said, my name is Angeliki Limberopoulou. Obviously, I'm a Greek. You can probably hear it from my accent. I was uh, born and raised in Greece. I, In fact, I attended university, uh, the, the University of Rethymnon in Crete. I am from Crete, um, where I studied archaeology and history of art. I had excellent uh, professors there professors are very uh, well known around the world. Had M- M- Maria Vasilaki in Byzantine archaeology, uh, Nicolas Hadzinikola in art history, Nicolas Stambolidis in classical art. I was very, very lucky. And then in 1992, I moved to United Kingdom. I thought I was going to do two years of diploma and a master's and just thought I was going to go back to Greece. I studied at the Courtauld Institute of Art. But uh, then I moved on to do a PhD in Birmingham with the great Leslie Brubaker. And here I am, <laughs> 29 years and counting. Uh, again, very lucky in Birmingham. I was in the centre, fantastic centre with Leslie uh, Brubaker. And my examiner for, in my PhD was Liz James. I, I have been very lucky in my life with my teachers, I suppose. But I need to say that originally I had no plans of studying Byzantine art, really. It's, it's I. It makes me blush when I think about it, but I actually did could not stand Byzantine art. I uh, joined the University of Crete and I wanted to do Hellenistic sculpture and I was thinking, as I was lamenting, I thought, oh no, I have to pass Byzantine art, art history, how am I going to do that? All the icons look the same, oh my word, oh my word. And then I walked into one of these the first lessons I had on Cretan icons. And it was like, oh, I just fell in love with them and I never looked back.
2: (laughs) That is quite interesting. I I hear a lot of scholars, Byzantine scholars today that have exactly the same story. They did not really plan to go into Byzantine studies, but they actually did, something happened.
3: I, I always tell my students never always give something if you think that you don't like something just give it a second chance never say never to anything because you know if i had said no to byzantine art i would never you know have been so happy doing byzantine art so yeah always give a second chance to things (laughs) absolutely well thank you for the
2: introduction and um so we came here today to talk about your um, one of the new books that you um, edited um, based on a conference, if, if I'm not mistaken. So how did you come to write this book and what inspired you to write it?
3: Well, um, the book is part of the proceedings of the um, Spring Byzantine Symposium, which is uh, they originated, in fact, in the University of Birmingham. Uh, the University of Birmingham is uh, where it, it, it's, it's their home, basically, with the great and late Professor Breyer, who started them. And then um, they took a life of their own, they're now uh, an annual thing in the United Kingdom. Um, internationally acclaimed uh, scholars uh, attend them. And um, every year, uh, a university uh, in the United Kingdom who has a Byzantinist in situ. Uh, organizes them. But, of course, every two years they go back to their home, to their mummy, the University of, of Birmingham. Uh, the University of Birmingham always, um, I think it's every two years, every third year. So, yes, at the Open University, it was, well, I volunteered. It was my turn anyway. And I thought I will do something about the wider Mediterranean at the time. It's my subject anyway. I specialize in Venetian Crete. Uh, cross-cultural interaction between mainly the uh, greek orthodox element and the italian roman catholic element uh, how these two groups coexisted in the wider mediterranean um, and how the society was affected and developed from this forced interaction to begin with so i thought yes it's it's maybe it would be interesting to do something with the weather Mediterranean. And, and uh, the subtitle, Whose Mediterranean Is It Anyway? Actually, uh, it was uh, when I first came to the United Kingdom. It was a comedy series uh, on TV, was which was called Whose Line Is It Anyway? So I, I just kind of got it. I thought it would be funny for those of uh, the British colleagues who actually got the... The joke, but yes, that was it. Whose Mediterranean is it anyway? Uh, and my idea uh, was that uh, Mediterranean belongs to nobody and to everybody. If you see what I mean. I mean, the whole point is that we are we all part of a global universe, and we have nothing to divide. I, I was hoping that that was really the end product will be that we're all humans and we need to coexist peacefully. That sort of thing. <laughs>
2: Well, well, yeah. That's uh that's one of the things when I when I was reading the book, as uh, I do study me medieval Europe uh, at large, and especially more Mediterranean, because I'm also from Greece. So I think I did see that aspect in the book. That um, you know, it's so complicated uh, mm-hmm. if you really think about it, and you you don't really see that on the surface. You have to really dig into um
3: some of the details. And as I make sorry, I just want to make sure I, I and I, I make that very clear in the introduction that obviously uh, within the confines of the specific conference the conference was over two days uh, of course, the who's Mediterranean is it anyway uh, it includes uh, in that Mediterranean, in that 1204 to 6069, we have all other ethnic groups and religions, of course, um, the Muslim element, the, um, uh, um, the Jewish people I mean, so many people um, People live and, and coexist in the Mediterranean, but as as I made very specific in the introduction, I didn't have the capacity to deal with all of this. It's a very broad, uh, obviously, subject, and I would have needed probably a week. It is. Uh, I hope in the in the future to have a conference, to organize a conference that includes all the other elements interacting with the Christ. Christian element, if you see what I mean, but I just wanted to focus specifically on the areas where the Orthodox and the Roman Catholic were trying to get together, if you see what I mean, to work together. Yeah. Yes,
2: yes, absolutely. And um, so let's dive into the book a little bit then. So um, you said 1204, and, uh, and uh, as we know, it's uh, when uh, Constantinople fell to the uh, Fourth Crusade. Um <laughs> What changed after 1204 that wasn't there before, in broader terms, when it comes to this cross-cultural interaction?
3: I think what changes primarily, it's uh, the vulnerability of the empire. Of course, the empire that never before was, what. Well, The the empire, the the capital, was threatened many times, but never before had this catastrophe. It was never faced with this catastrophe. And, of course, everything changes. All of a sudden, the territories uh, have to, um, as I said, coexist with other people. Sorry, let me take a step, ba- a step back because, of course, I'm not saying that 1204, uh, the Roman Catholics or, or the Westerns or the Latins or whatever name you want to call them, they just all appear all of a sudden in 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 Byzantium. Of course, there were before. Of course, there was interaction before Constantinople and Venice. It's just by having seizing the capital, the structure changes, and all of a sudden this dynamic we had, like the empire. It's like you have the emperor who was like, whoa, the the ruler, let's say, of the Mediterranean. This power shifts anymore. He's not the ruler of the Mediterranean. Other powers come into forces and the balance tips to the West, to the Roman Catholics or Latins or whatever name you want to call them. So the empire kind of is under while all this time used to be above, if that makes sense. The power shifts. It changes. There's no more. If if uh, if you understand what I'm saying, the emperor, uh, you know the it's just the whole thing collapses, uh, certainly economically.
2: And that was something that um, the, the Byzantines did not um, see before, right? It's something that it's the first time they saw their their precious city to somebody else, correct?
3: Exactly. That was, that's what I mean, because, of course, um, the, um, it is generally uh, accepted that the Battle of Magikert in 1071 has been labeled as the beginning of the end. It's basically where the shift happens with Romanos IV losing that battle uh, in Madzikert and then the vulnerability of the empire and the army and the international, international sorry, uh, internal strife, this kind of civil backstabbing in the court, all this, they're, they're all exposed and 1071 is, well, regarded by many historians as the beginning of the end and then finally we have 1204 and then there is no way back. I think Constantinople never, and um, the empire never recovers from that. Although twelve sixty one, we have Michael the Eighth, but we know the the, the the empire is financially dependent on the Genoese, the Venetians. Uh, um, it's in ruins. Uh, we still have a civil war. I mean, yeah, it's just. It's no more, basically. Yeah. yeah so, I, it sounds as if I'm narrating a, a doomsday scenario. I'm so sorry. This really. Thank like, oh, there's no more. There's, sorry, but this is 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 history. I, I'm not trying to be, you know, <laughs> trying to make it more black than it was. But that is. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I do apologize to the listeners if they think that it's like a doomsday scenario that I'm really painting here.
2: No, it's it's definitely a a. A different time from what we see in the past yeah. so not necessarily a doomsday but definitely a different <laughs> setting uh more that they did not see in the past mm-hmm. so um looking into your book um you have decided to split and curate the book in four distinct categories based mm-hmm. on geogra- geography geography mm-hmm. so we have um The chapters about, you know, evidence from Crete, Cyprus, the Peloponnese, and then evidence from the wider Mediterranean. Why this order and why these specific areas?
3: The order is... very specific. Uh, as I said, I'm a, I specialize in Venetian Crete. And as you very well know, you being Greek, if we do not say nice things about our house, the roof will fall on your head. And So I had to start with Crete. <laughs> um, no, jokes aside. Um, Crete, as far as I'm concerned, uh, aside, uh, and apart from the fact that, as I said, that's my research area, it's an excellent case study for this cross-cultural interaction between the um, Greeks and the Latins. Uh, we have a stable Venetian rule between 1204 and 1669, uninterrupted, where the Venetians actually have the ability to build a the state or what they had in mind, and the law, everything works there uninterrupted, uh, and they considered Crete the most precious possession in the Mediterranean, which is a, a term, actually, uh, a sentence, uh, and I'm shamelessly uh, nicking it from uh, Professor Maria Yorgopoulou, who has put that in, in one of her articles, but I think she's very right, saying that it is really it was the most precious possession in the Mediterranean. So for me, there was no, you know, we had to start from Crete. Cyprus, uh, another stronghold. Uh, the Venetians uh, have a great presence in Cyprus, as we know, but again, interrupted. We have Venetians, they go, they come again. It's not like on Crete. We don't have this linearity, this very, very stable rule. And of course, the Peloponnese, again, they have they have a very strong presence. Um, they have uh, Modon and Koron in the Peloponnese which they called the twice of the republic when these uh, two cities were lost and i think around was it around 1500 i mean we have actually in the sources uh, they say that venice has lost the, the two uh, her twice in, the, in in the mediterranean so all of these three places very important for the venetians now their presence in the wider mediterranean is there Obviously, we cannot underestimate it. As uh, but I thought by focusing on these three areas, which were specific to them, for trade, for whatever reasons, the others will also fall into place and produce another compar- the comparative material. And effectively, I didn't want to close the book. I actually my uh, my hope is that the baton will taken and actually uh, continue with other uh, colleagues, scholars, new blood uh, to the Dalmatian coast, which is a very interesting uh, place. Uh, We have uh, colleagues who are already doing that. I think Maria Bulgaropoulou is uh, working on this. There are so many areas, and I only hope that this can open up the discussion and the field further. But the structure... Is because I feel personally through my research that Crete, Cyprus, and the Peloponnese for the Venetians at this particular time are very, very important strongholds for the maritime power that, that, that they are.
2: Yeah, and and uh, so throughout the book, I mean, and you see the the approach that the book has taken. I was um, very impressed because it takes such a multidisciplinary approach. You have art, you have uh, you have these chronicles that are being a- analyzed, so there's um, there's this again multidisciplinary um, analysis that the book takes, and uh, I just appreciated, you know, the art how it works with explaining these concepts through art through manuscripts. Um, what would you say is one of the um, most defining characteristics between these cross cultural cross cultural interactions throughout these different geographical areas?
3: The most defining characteristic, I mean, through my research in particular and the conference showed, is that um, obviously I'm an art historian and archaeologist, so my research starts from that point. But if you go in depth and you search and search, you, you, you the, the, the thing that it becomes clear is just that art is not a mushroom, it just doesn't pop like a mushroom everywhere. It's part of the society economic, trade, culturally, religious, all the circumstances come together and it's reflected in art. And that's why I said that it's very important that we have the Venetian rule in Crete, which is steady, because we can actually see how it developed. Uh, The initial hostility of the Cretan people uh, towards um, the Venetian colonies, which we also have in Cyprus and the Peloponnese to begin with. And then you see... How the centuries uh, go by, and this hostility subsides not so much because uh, all of a sudden oh it's paradise and it's so they all dancing together thinking we are friends now no but it's the trade money sp- knows no language no money is the ultimate language so the Venetians uh, are very clever in using Crete's uh, products uh, wheat honey wine. And, of course, that generates um, an income for the regional centres. You have uh, people working, having more money. Everybody is being more, I don't know, content, I suppose. However, will you see that? And then also the Venetians were very clever in, in, uh, just let me say that, they didn't really stopped the um, natives from building the churches and I mean they had this Semmo uh, Primo Veneziani e Poi Cristiani with first Venetians and then Christians and sometimes actually they did get in in open dispute with the Pope. They had no qualms in that. When it came down to their colonies uh, there were first Venetians and then Christians. Having said all this, of course, you, you see the social and the economic strides, but religiously, yes, I, I can never say that the Orthodox and the Catholics saw eye to eye. You can, the, the socially and economically, and the advances are far more advanced than the religious. It remains, and it remains well into the 16th century a problem. Does it make sense what I'm saying? i just just through art, you have all these reflections. You have let me let me break it down the way I I teach my students. You have a beautiful church, you kind of think this beautiful church in Reginald Crete. You have to start thinking. Okay, it's in the middle of nowhere. I'm not I'm not I'm not sure if you have ever been to Crete, but some of these churches are really really hard to get to. I mean, it takes ages to find these churches. You kind of think, okay, we have this beautiful church. How? Did we get, how did, well, let's say it's 14th century. How did the people get permission? Don't forget that the, 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 the colonists are, are Catholic. So we have a Byzantine Orthodox Church. How did the villagers um, get the money to, to, to invite a painter down here in the middle of nowhere to paint this church? Uh, who visited the church? Uh, how did the priests officiate in the church? You know, so all these questions arise from a monument and unless you answer them then you don't really deal with the monument properly if that makes sense i'm sorry i i i made it very convoluted that should have started from the last bit which is how i always uh, talk to my students i'm so sorry
2: no it's okay i i think i definitely understand that there is so much hidden under you know things that in the past and in the past scholarship we will have just brushed through um, and I think uh, you might be able to um, also second that thought, but I think most recently there has been this push to really look into the artwork, really look into these uh, specific components that pro- that might have been uh, um, misplaced in the past.
3: Yes, I think art is there to, It's a, It's. it's a testimony, it's a way of connecting with the past because it speaks to you. If you really, really look at it, and listen to it, it really speaks to you. Because, again, from your examples, I think it's better. There are churches on Crete where you have uh, certain Western elements. Um, For example, I'm just gonna say the most famous of them all. Uh, We have um, um, the depiction of Saint Bartholomew uh, holding his flayed skin over his shoulder um which is his martyrdom according to the Roman Catholic Church because according to the Greek Orthodox he was crucified. So the fact that we have we have in a Byzantine Orthodox Church a saint who is also part of the Orthodox liturgy, but depicted in the way he was martyred according to the Western tradition, it tells something. It tells it it, it says that Catholics must have had an input in this iconography. We also, for example, another example of the different in a different direction, we have an inscription in Selenon that, cha- that 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 specifically declares that this church, Selino, sorry, Selino is the southwest region on Crete. Uh, the Southwest region on Crete. And it says specifically that this church was decorated by money uh, sorry with money only of orthodox people so the fact that this is specifically obviously shows hostility in the first place you can see that clearly these people did not like the fact that catholics uh, were kind of in their area but it also suggests indirectly that catholics were in fact putting money down in other areas for Byzantine churches so do you see what i mean it's like unraveling a whole big maze and I think I find that fascinating it's just like a detective work you have to find hopefully not a body at the end but the truth and and life <laughs> yeah
2: indeed um it's it's fascinating um did you ever have you seen any examples of for example um Byzantine citizens from Crete um and like adopting nation um Catholic religious beliefs or the opposite? Was there any um, cultural exchange uh, between these two peoples while having this cultural interaction, living together in the same land? Uh, Yes,
3: Uh, that is an undiluted yes, uh, which becomes a lot more prominent after 1453, the second fall of Constantinople. But the thing is um, that already in the 14th century, early in the first half of the 14th century, we have documents and uh, archive, archival evidence that we had intermarriages between Catholics and Orthodox. So we have what we call bilingual, uh, or yeah, bilingual. Uh, in the wider sense households where one parent was catholic the other was orthodox now mostly i have to say to begin with it is um the father or it, it's the venetian uh, lords who come to crete and they're looking into marrying into local aristocracy who has the land, of course. So they they marry upper-class ladies and like that they inherit uh, land and that is from where the cross-cultural interaction starts. But then it expands in middle classes, obviously not so much in the regions, but we have effectively, um, at some point we can very clearly see that there is the Cretan identity. It's not like I am a Venetian or a Cret or, or you know a, a, a Catholic Venetian or a Greek Orthodox. It's the Cretan identity that encapsulates everything. And Sally McKee, who has published three volumes on the wills of the people from Crete, has clearly demonstrated that at some point you cannot tell by the names anymore. If somebody is Greek or Latin, you, you cannot, the names are not a good uh, uh, source to, to make a judgment. Uh, and further, further, to complicate things further about this duality, these wills, we have a lot of people who actually uh, leave money in the wills and donate both to Catholic and Orthodox establishments. So you can see how things change, they completely become. Cretan, I suppose, that's that's the the bottom line, that people feel that they're from Crete, doesn't matter if they're Venetian or Greek or Orthodox, they're just Cretan, the Cretan identity rises, uh, and it's very clear by the 17th century.
1: Slash NBN fifty to get fifty percent off.
2: That is so fascinating, especially talking about medieval times. Right, mm-hmm. we don't have this image in our heads, uh, at least from previous scholarship. I, I know recently that there have been a lot of books that talk about it, but um, why do you think that is? Why, why, why do you think that's? What's the biggest um, driving force behind this mixture of uh, multiple identities to create one new identity?
3: Well, this is what I am trying to understand myself. And also, I believe that case studies like that, and I'm not talking, I mean, I'm talking about Crete again, because it is my field, but it's not only Crete, it's Cyprus, it's the Peloponnese, obviously, it's Epirus, the Ionian Islands, the Dodecanese. uh, all of these areas are very fertile case studies, which we can learn a lot and i'm hoping that it can teach us something to learn how to coexist peacefully or at least trying to find a common way of coexisting together in this present world because yes we get an image as i said not of paradise but an image where people found a way despite the fact that they had differences they just found a way to be together to coexist. Um, um, yes, after after uh, the 1367, we don't even have any more major apprises on Crete. You know, I, and I'm talking, and I'm I'm saying 1367 because that's befo- way bef- well before 1453. In scholarship, we assume that once uh, 40 uh, in 1453, once Constantinople is lost, then Crete, uh, the Cretan people say that's it. Now we can turn to Venice, which it happens, but all I'm saying, it was there, the road, the path was already open with the coexistence. And uh, yeah, then of course, um, the greatest example of them all is that Crete uh, gave the world El Greco. I mean, you have a, a wonderful master who is able to... Combine everything, all his background, uh, Byzantine, Italian, Venetian, uh, his classical education, and just create something wonderful, beautiful. And it is because, I do believe, it's because of his cultural background, his cultural roots. Not talking only Crete, because as we know, El Greco went to Venice, to Rome, uh, stayed in Spain. I'm talking about the whole thing, how beautiful it is when people just learn how to be with each other and learn from each other and, and take the best out of other cultures.
2: I think that's the best message <laughs> that we can bring into today's world from the yeah. medieval times.
3: Yes, I hope so. I really hope so. Yes. Well, that's great.
2: So, um, where do you see um, this topic developing in, in the future? I know you say you have prospects that hopefully this will expand and become even even bigger. Where do you see this going into the future, this topic of um, cross-cultural interaction between Byzantium and and the West?
3: Well, as I said, I would really like, um, in the next symposium, I I hope that I will be able, uh, God willing to... um, to organise. I would really like to expand the territories, obviously. As I said, the Dalmatia coast uh, is uh, fantastic. We have so, and and it's just so, we have so much to learn. I would like to bring other um, territories, but also, more importantly, uh, to expand these cross-cultural interactions towards Islam, you know, also. And, uh, of course, uh, the very important Jewish uh, element uh, that we have in the Mediterranean, which is very important, I would like to see it more widely, uh, and that's why, as I said, I put this subtitle: "Whose Mediterranean is it anyway?" Because my uh, <laughs> my belief is, as I said, it doesn't be, it belongs to nobody and to everybody. It belongs to all of us. If you see what I mean, it's a cultural development rather than somebody can claim it. Uh, but yes, I would very much like to have an outlook to Islam and, um, the Jewish, um, influences, influences, interactions, the dialogue of all these elements, cultural elements. Yeah.
2: I think that would be a great addition. Um. Do you think there is any new forms of art that maybe this topic can expand into? I know you um in the book um there is the um, mentioning of um um elephants painted in in manuscripts and 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 churches and and architecture um do you think there's any any new Art approaches uh, where we can get more evidence from from that particular time. Something that scholars haven't
3: seen yet. So, what What do you have in mind exactly? Because I I know that that is uh, Andreas Matiel Andreas Andrea Matielo's beautiful uh, paper on the the elephant uh, on the page is is beautiful, isn't it? Yes, <laughs> great sense of humor, excellent chapter indeed. So what 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 exactly? Can you give me what you have in mind? In order for you to ask the question, you clearly have something in mind. What do you have in mind? Let me just throw the question right back at you. (laughs) Sure, sure. I was
2: thinking um, any form of um, an alternative art, like have we looked at pottery? Have we looked at um, um, certain different iconographies, Uh, the way churches were built, architecture? Have we looked into... Is there anything that we missed so far into looking into cross-cultural interactions when it comes to art?
3: Well, um, first of all, um, there is in uh, Byzantine Art and Renaissance Europe, the book I have edited with um, my husband, Rembrandt Douds, I I do go into this, uh, how a church was built. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, it, it's very, it, it always intrigues me how in the middle of nowhere in a village on Crete, people called for a painter to come and decorate the church. Uh, this I have found it uh, very fascinating. Also, you mentioned op- what you say, basically, it's material culture, which is very important. And uh, another thing we have started looking at, again, um, it's the art of the poor, of course, looking... Uh, art produced by the lower classes, which I think it's very, very important because, you know, Byzantium has this glamour and gold and glitter and mosaics. Uh, But actually, if you think about it, it's just a very uh, few top percentage of the population we're talking about, aristocrats from the emperor. If you think the rest of the people were really, like, you know, today, common people with not many means... Uh, but they still produce art. And I think I find that, and Crete, again, gives a wonderful case study, as does also um, the Peloponnese. Sharon Gerstel has demonstrated that wonderfully in her book. And, of course, Cyprus, again. And, yeah, the Dalmatian coast, etc. So if you're thinking of material culture, yes, we have a lot to look into, as you say, pottery and all of this, absolutely. Totally
2: Great. I mean, the way the reason why I'm asking this question is because I know, you know, I, I do my own research into this. And I again, there's just so much to unravel, which is the reason why we're doing this podcast today to, you know, bring this into the forefront um, and, and you know, hopefully, you know, inspire to do more research into it in many other fields, many other ways of approaching things. But um, um, so more of a technical question now. What what was your biggest challenge into developing this book?
3: My biggest challenge was to actually um Keep on writing to the, you know, how busy the academics are, just making sure that I kept on reminding them the deadlines I was setting. I felt at some point like I was, I was really a, a horrible person, that everybody hated me because I kept on sending emails once a month, like a calendar, you know, please remember that in one month I need your, uh, your draft. Please remember that in two weeks I need your draft. So at some point I felt that everybody hated me <laughs> because I was trying to keep to a timetable obviously, because I'm busy, they're busy, so... um, But for the rest, it was a great um, joy, actually. Uh, It helped me, of course, uh, the scholars, uh, the colleagues. It's wonderful to collaborate. You cannot exist on your own as you... you, You're a young researcher yourself, Evan. You know that uh, unless you talk to other people, uh, research does not happen in a vacuum, so... Uh, it was wonderful for me to read with pleasure. Or all this, uh, I felt obviously very apprehensive. Sometimes, obviously, I'm not a native speaker, so I had to edit papers, as you can see, for other Greeks, Italians, and uh, even you know uh, native speakers. So I felt a little bit, who should I be doing that? Me? <laughs> no, but. Uh, in the end, it was just, um, it was totally worth it. I learned so much. I learned really, really so much. It was totally, totally worth it. I would do it again, if that's what you're asking me. Yes, it was was worth every single minute. But it is hard work, don't get me wrong. I'm not going to say, well, you know, best experience of my life. No, but I will do it again because I learned so much. (laughs)
2: That's fantastic. And uh, I mean, another thing that really surprised me with this volume is the, again, the multidisciplinary um, um, faculty that um, have contributed to the work. We have uh, uh, people in Byzantine art history, medieval Russian art, just Byzantine history in general, iconography. It's just... I see it as uh, a lot of people with different interests uh, and and different research coming together to produce something, as you said, that if you don't meet somebody, you're not going to create research. So I, uh, that's another thing that I admire about this work as well.
3: Yes. And I think absolutely it's very important because all the colleagues uh, that, I mean, they're the wonderful colleagues uh, personally, uh, I think I was very lucky that they, they were willing to participate. Um, and, I, I mean, some wonderful contributions by Leslie Boubaker, Liz James, obviously. Maria costanto Daiki, who um, has done a lot and a lot of work on the Venetian archives. Um, um, my own husband, who actually works, his name is Rembrandt he he's actually a Renaissance specialist, but he... We have been working on Crete because obviously he has an interest from the Venetian point of view, so he can see um, a lot of Italian Western influences into Cretan art. So it's been very, very useful talking to him. Of course, uh, Dionysius Stathakopoulos, who I um, work very closely, he's a very dear friend and colleague, we work closely together. But I, I don't mean that by not mentioning other people that, that I don't appreciate their contribution. I just try to think, uh, so please, if for those listening, oh, Tasos Papacostas, of course. I'm just trying to think now. If I'm leaving anybody out, it's not because I, I, I loved all the contributions. I'm just really kind of panicking, thinking, whom I have left out, whom I have left out. I'm so sorry. <laughs> it, they're all, you know, I thought it was, it was great reading their contributions. And, uh, yeah. I, I, I felt really privileged that they wanted to contribute. That's amazing. Yes. <laughs>
2: um. So we're getting kind of to the close, and uh, a question that I want to ask you, as you know, the editor, who would you give this book to? Who does it really, um, talk about the most? Is it for somebody that studies Byzantine art? Is it for somebody that studies just Byzantium in general, or the West and the East connections, or 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 is it all of these people like who is the main audience of this book
3: according to your um
2: perspective
3: I think I think the main audience is definitely somebody who has an interest in Byzantium but in all fairness I will say that it would be more interesting for people who study Renaissance and medieval western art because I think I think Byzantium is misunderstood, and it's like the marginal child in art history for sure. You know, when when you know you have Byzantine art, and then people say, "Oh, Michelangelo, Raphael," and you, you you cannot compete with the names primarily because Byzantine art is not about names. But people don't understand it's 1,100 years, and that art, that culture, has enormous, has enormous influence in the West, certainly medieval art, and uh, the, it, it has played an immense role in the development of the European culture, European identity, and I think people tend to forget, because all they think or know is Vasari, sla, you know, kind of think, oh, this terrible medieval uh, Greek style, and all they think of Gibbon, the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, and they don't they don't give it a second chance, basically like me, before I entered into that class where it had Kret and I was thinking, oh, they all look the same. How horrible. No, why should I? No, it is so much more to it. People don't understand how important this culture is for Europe. And I'm not saying that Europe is the beginning and the end, but no, but Europe, again, is part of the global But Byzantium has really played a major role in contributing to the development of that European culture, and I think it's it's about time that we found our uh, Byzantium found its way into the Western scholarship for real. I mean, we tend to forget that Bellini, uh, Crivelli, we have wonderful Italian and Venetian painters. Who were very much exposed to Byzantine art. Uh, and people tend to, of the Medici, uh, the Medici had Byzantine icons, the Bargello Pantocrator, the mosaic icon, it was uh, in the, uh, Lorenzo de' Medici. And people, um, scholars think, well, they cannot explain that, because Vasari says that, uh, and then how could the, the Medici, which is a, the equivalent of the Renaissance, how is it possible that they had so many Byzantine icons? Yeah, because... If you look closer, Byzantine icons are just really precious. They're beautiful objects. So, yes, we need to look closer. Obviously, again, I'm a Byzantinist. Of course, I'm going to say nice things about Byzantium. But, <laughs> but yes, I think, I think it, if nothing else, it's 1,100 years. 1,100 years of culture. Surely, it's worth our, our uh, efforts.
2: Definitely, and do you think it's changing? Do 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 you think that scholars from, you know, from Europe and I mean, again from the Greek world and from all the parts of the scholastic arena, do you think they're changing the, their perspective on, on this on on what you you just said?
3: I hope so. Uh, certainly, there is um, some effort um, to reconsider. Um, the Paleologian times, which is considered a decline, um, I'm not. I'm not sure. I mean, yeah, Byzantine icons have always were important in the modern modern art because we have a lot of Russian modern uh, painters who clearly um were influenced by, by by icons. You have like uh, Malevich for example, uh, you have uh, Matisse who was very enamoured by them. So there is there's certainly the modern uh, early modern early modern sorry I, I'm just getting very confused with that because early modern people, usually by early modern, uh, they refer to us, medieval and renaissance. Well, for me, early modern is the the early 20th century where we have Picasso, Matisse. So, uh, yeah, somebody needs to sort out the terminology because I totally don't agree with it. But anyway, so um, the, tw- the early 20th century uh, artists there is an interest we know that Matisse was completely besotted by the icons and what they stand so modern art has an understanding i mean probably you know that Rothko is considered this um, it has this mysticism and you know it has this element of iconic atmosphere but i'm not sure if it's really because they understand what an icon is and how important it is for the development of the European culture, or they just see it as an influence, a kind of little tiny piece of a puzzle in the development of modernity. And I'm afraid it's the latter. And again, I don't agree. But I don't want to go into a dialogue about and, and in that, a discussion about uh, uh, modernity or what is early modern, because it's confusing. I don't believe we should be called early modern because it's very confusing. Medieval Renaissance, it's fine early modern as i said for me when i say early modern it's early 20th century when it starts Anyway, forget about it delete the last five minutes of of this because i know i'm probably going to create a whole lot i can see a debate (laughs) escalating please delete it no Uh, but yes okay yeah, yeah yeah
2: Uh and, and, and again the way I'm asking these questions is because you know, reading this book, you know, it brings you so many questions um afterwards, after you read it. It it makes you it makes you think about these things and it's
3: it's interesting. Well, thank you for saying that. It's very kind of you to find well, the whole point is as I said, it was not i certainly did not uh my intention was not to give answers. Uh my intention was primarily to raise more questions and uh, continue from there because I don't I don't you know can you imagine if, if let's say somebody said that oh somebody has written about the Sistine Chapel and Michelangelo that's it. we don't need to, 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 to deal with Michelangelo anymore. that's it. We know everything there is to know. no. The whole point is that we we keep revisiting things and by the more we look at them, the more we learn. So, yes, the more questions we have, the better it is for scholarship. These books are not meant to give the definitive answers. It's not like oh, this This is the gospel and the, the only truth. No, it's for opening more doors, more questions, and even questions that will question that book. I think if people come and question what it is written in that book, I think the book will have made its point. Yes, it's been challenged, totally. You couldn't have said
2: it better. <laughs> Well, Angeliki, uh, we've taken a lot of your time and we thank you so much. Um, I would like to ask one last question before you go. Um, what are you up to nowadays? Do you have any other interesting projects that you're working on? Well,
3: yeah, um, probably uh, you, you probably know the, uh, the, the most recent book that uh, has come out is Hell in the Byzantine World. Uh, Two-volume book uh, that uh, has basically it it does what it says in the thing Hell in the Byzantine World. We deal with represent we deal it deals with representations of hell um, Byzantine to be specific representations of hell, Crete, Cyprus, Cappadocia, the Peloponnese, mainland Greece. Um, We have also the historic background of the Byzantine period and uh, archival material supporting um, evidence for punishment. So uh, it took a lot of time. That was a Leverhulme-funded project, International Networks. It took a, a a lot of time. It came out last October, and I think I'm still catching my breath from that. It was really hard work, and finally we finished. So we still, yay! And we did it even while it was in the middle of the COVID. Uh, we were still kind of editing the book at the when COVID hit the world. So I'm still recovering from that. <laughs> but a database is coming. So watch the space. A database with all the material from Creed, and uh, hopefully we will launch in October, as in this October next month uh, and for it will be free of uh, charge people will can subscribe and have a look at the material and all the punishments in, in hell on Earth. On, uh, on, on so um, what's the space
2: well that sounds neat, an awesome project and i can't <laughs> wait to see it myself so thank you thank you and finally again uh, thank you for coming on the show today i really enjoyed our, our conversation and uh, take care